Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Suffolk County investigators have been searching for evidence since 10 bodies were found on the beach starting in December of 2010. Right now, based on, uh, you know, the common denominators, uh, the similarities of the victims, where they were dumped, the dismemberment, uh, you know, it looks like one person. We have some breaking news. CBS News has confirmed police have a suspect in custody linked to New York's 2010 infamous Gilgo Beach murders. Authorities were reportedly on the scene earlier today at First Avenue and Massapequa Park. On December 11th, 2010, the first of what ended up being a total of 10 bodies was found. So we're going to have more information as we get it on this developing story. A Suffolk County police will share new information in their investigation into the unsolved murders on Gilgo Beach. Suffolk County investigators have been searching for evidence since 10 bodies were found on the beach starting in December of 2010. Police are expected to disclose new evidence today as well as a new initiative to share information on the cases and the new technology they're using to try to solve all those murders. This morning, police are pouring through potential evidence they've collected from the Long Island home of Rex Box after box removed from the crime scene. The architect and father of two has pleaded not guilty to murdering three young women over a decade ago. And now NBC News has learned that investigators in other states are looking into potential connections to more crimes. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcast and Killer Podcast production. This week we are joined by... An author, a true crime author, a very successful author, Jesse P. Pollock. He is the author of The Acid King. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Very happy to be here. Well, I am thrilled to have you on. I had the pleasure of meeting you yesterday through another show that we do with Evergreen on Crime Capsule, and the conversation was so captivating, I felt like we needed to continue that conversation. You needed to steal me away from Ben. It's, it's, I stole you away from Ben for an episode. Controversial. There's a rift in the world now. There, there might be uh, butterflies flapping. <laughs> might change. <laughs> might change the whole future. Butterfly effect may happen. But uh, what we're here to talk about actually today is the case of the Long Island serial killer. And as you guys know, I've covered this case for a long time, and Jesse actually has been. A little bit closer to the investigation than I have. And uh, why don't you give us a little bit of a background on how you got associated with this, uh, this large, sprawling investigation? Well, it was a really strange turn of events, honestly. Um, I mean, I was familiar with the case from the moment it broke. I remember um, it was before I was working as a professional journalist and way before I was uh, working on my first book. Um, I was actually working in a hospital as a patient sitter, 
And the patient that I was assigned to was watching, I don't know, CNN or MSNBC, one of those at the time. And then all of a sudden, it just cut into the broadcast, like major breaking news, all these bodies have been found along the Gilgo Parkway. And it's kind of hard for a a lot of people that follow true crime media um, these days to kind of wrap their head around this. But in 2010, 2011, when that story broke, it was kind of a big deal because this was the biggest sort of, I guess, serial killer news probably since Dahmer. Like, things kind of came to a lull with serial killers as forensic technology was advancing and, you know, a lot of these killers were getting caught early on and... You know, a lot of them didn't have the quote unquote like icon status as like your Dahmers and your Bundys and your Gacy's have, you know, since elevated to. So to hear on the news that there is like essentially a modern day Jack the Ripper running around on Long Island, only about two hours away from where I grew up in New Jersey, it was pretty startling. And for most of the people that remember the news breaking, like the updates just kept coming and kept coming. And then there was the whole saga of Shannon Gilbert, the escort who had disappeared in Oak beach, not far away from where these bodies were found. And there was all this speculation. Is she one of these bodies? And she, it turned out like she wasn't. And so it became like this really weird, not just a whodunit case, but excuse me. Um, a case of, All right, this is getting bizarre. We're on the fourth or fifth set of remains that we have tried DNA matching to Shannon, and it's not her. And the number jumped to, if not not a dozen, you know, over a dozen. Um, And then, of course, once they finally did find her uh, in the marsh... The story just continued to get stranger and stranger. The circumstances of how her body ended up there, um, the state of her body, the state of her personal effects, and then the linchpin that sort of led me into getting pulled into the case as no longer just an observer, but uh, someone who was kind of working behind the scenes on it, was the issue of the now infamous 911 call. Um, At the time that the story broke, uh, you know, the public was aware that there was a 21-minute 911 call, but in a really, really strange turn of events, the Suffolk County Police Department was refusing to release this audio, and that made it all the more frustrating for anyone who was paying attention to the case because at the same time, the Suffolk County Police Department was also trying to say that, no, she's completely unrelated to this, you know, serial killer case along uh, the parkway, um, but we're, we're not going to let you listen to the tape. And it's like, well, what is it? If, if she was a completely unrelated event and she wasn't even murdered, it was an accident or quote-unquote death by misadventure, what is the harm of releasing this 911 call? And they always fell back on, oh, well, it's an ongoing investigation and it would compromise the investigation to release this audio. Now, you know, I don't want to speak too much for motivations here because it's all speculation, but in a lot of these cases where the police do not want to release a piece of evidence, um, no matter how circumstantial it is or not, 
a lot of times the motivation behind it is, you know, we just kind of want something to go away. We we don't want this to be a topic of discussion. We Let's just deny the release of it and hope people forget about it. But when you deny something like that, uh, more and more people are going to want it. And so the it, it was like a really morbid thing, honestly. The Shannon Gilbert 911 call was kind of like the holy grail of quote-unquote lost media when it came to true crime. And I was convinced that no one was ever going to hear it. Um you know, usually when the cops are saying for a decade, no, we're not going to release this and they're fighting court systems and judges and, and you know, court orders, it's, it's a pretty good indication that no one is ever going to hear this thing. And then much to my surprise, a decade later, and by this point, I had already published two books and um, co-directed a true crime documentary, um, I came across on social media a GoFundMe link that was shared by a, a friend of mine on Facebook, and it had it was it was something to do with Shannon's family, and I clicked on it and said, oh, "What's going on here? Like, what do they need to GoFundMe for?" Because um, they had already used a GoFundMe to bury Shannon, which is tragic in and of itself. Like, how many movies at this point have been made about Shannon Gilbert? How many? television episodes have been made about her. Her family has never received any sort of financial compensation for any of those projects. They were never brought in as consultants or anything like that. And I know that for a fact from, um, I I've since become friendly with Shannon's sister, Cherie. And that's made all the more infuriating by the fact that Peacock is going around and signing, you know, a million dollar deal with Rex Hurman's uh, wife, ex-wife, whatever she is. I don't know, but that's a whole other kettle of fish. But you get what I'm saying here. It's just, you know, just seeing that this poor family who has gone through enough tragedy and has been exploited by so many entities, you know, had to put their hands out just to bury the poor woman. And now there's another GoFundMe popping up on social media. I just had to take a look at it and go, what's going on now? What are they doing to these poor people? And basically it said, um, our attorney, John Ray, has finally been granted access to the recordings of Shannon's 911 call, but he is not allowed to make the tape public. Um, he's only allowed to um, review it and analyze it pending a, a civil case that um, was filed against Dr. Uh, Charles Peter Hackett, who it was an Oak Beach resident who kind of inserted himself into this case under a lot of really bizarre circumstances. Bizarre, bizarre circumstances. Talk about insertion. Jeez. Really I mean. weird guy with a really weird history. Um, so bizarre. I could honestly go either way on it. Some of the stuff that he's done is so shady that, yeah, I could definitely see him being a, a serial killer. Mm -hmm. But I can also just see him as being a pathological liar who it just thrives on attention. I could go either way. Um, listeners, if you haven't already, I cannot recommend enough reading lost girls by robert kulker um I was bring that up because we talked about that yesterday and yeah go ahead yeah it's it's the definitive book on the case it's a great overview on the case even though it was written before the arrest of hewerman and um there are several chapters that go into the bizarre history of dr hackett and his connection to shannon's disappearance and death so um that case 
basically opened the door for the Suffolk County PD to finally be compelled by a court order to release that recording to the Gilbert family lawyer, John Ray, again, with the caveat, you cannot make it public. You cannot play it for anyone else other than whoever you're independently using to clean up, analyze, or transcribe the tapes. Now, the GoFundMe mentioned that they had consulted a firm in, I believe, New Jersey that was quoting the job at something like $6,000 to, you know, analyze, clean up, and transcribe a 21-minute piece of audio. Um, I mean, look, I'm not against people getting paid for their work. But for Christ's sakes, hasn't this family been through enough? They're of limited means. They have never once gotten a single dime from any of the three movies that have been made about them. The, you know, 25 TV specials, et cetera, et cetera. They're economically impoverished. Again, like I mentioned before, they had to rely on charity just to bury Shannon. And seeing that GoFundMe, I just didn't think it was right. Again, like I don't, I don't expect this company to hand everything out for free. But come on, can't you can't throw them a discount or do something pro bono? But instead of just sitting there and shaking my fist at the sky, uh, for lack of a better term, I kind of realized, well, I'm in a unique position where maybe I can do some good here. Uh, before I became a professional journalist, I was actually a trained audio Manhattan engineer. Straight out of high school, I went to the Institute of Audio Research in Manhattan because at the time I played in music groups and I kind of thought, well, you know, playing live music doesn't make a whole lot of money, but maybe I could make steady income as a producer or a sound engineer. So I was trained in many methods of sound editing, sound cleanup, sound restoration, etc. Um, skills that I utilize for doing um, the audio work on the documentaries that I've worked on, uh, even podcasting. So, you know, while I'm not on the cutting edge of audio technology, I know more about it than your average Tom, Dick, and Harry. So I just thought, you know what? They might not reply to you. But you can at least say you offered to help instead of just being, you know, another loud member of the peanut gallery. So I sent an email to John Ray. I got his email address off of his website, you know, basically explaining everything that I just did. So instead of just sitting there and shaking my fist at the sky for lack of a better term, you know, out of frustration for how wrong this family has been done, I realized, well, I might be in a unique position to help here. Uh, before I became a professional journalist and an author and a documentarian, I actually was a trained audio engineer. Um, I, straight out of high school, I went to the Institute of Audio Research in Manhattan because when I was in high school, I played in bands and I figured, well, if you know, I don't make a, you know, a living as a touring or gigging musician, uh, you know, maybe I could make steady income as a producer or soundboard engineer or something like that. So I was trained by some of the best in the field in audio editing, audio restoration, cleaning up like old tapes and stuff like that. Um, skills that I still use to this day between the documentaries that I work on and podcasting. So, you know, I wasn't under any like impression, like, oh, they're going to be running to me for this. But I just figured, well, at least I can say I did something. You know, I, I tried to help instead of just 
saying, oh, that's a shame, and shrugging my shoulders and walking away. I had watched this family get done dirty so many times over the years that I was just like, I'm sick of seeing this. Like, let me see if I can help. So I reached out to John Ray uh, through his website, and I pretty much explained everything uh, the way that I did just now to him. You know, look, I'm a trained audio engineer. I'm also a true crime journalist. I'm familiar with the case. I know the particulars. You know, you won't have to bring me up to speed on who is who like you would with, you know, someone who is just in the sound world. Like, I'm in both worlds, and I would be more than happy to help you out with this, and I would not charge a dime. And he's and he reached out to me the next day and he said, can you take a phone call? So we got on the phone and we talked for a couple hours. He explained the situation uh, to me and essentially said, you know, what we are looking for is under all of the, you know, audible noise, the hiss, the static, all the stuff from this low fidelity recording of a telephone call. Are there other voices in the house other than Shannon, her driver, Michael Pack, and the John who called her to his home, Joseph Brewer. And he also wanted to know if there was, if we could find any evidence that the tape had been doctored in any way, like any evidence that, you know, some portions of audio had been snipped out because again, the Suffolk County police department held this tape for nearly a decade. I want to say it was nine years and he was he was understandably concerned, like, you know, they had all this time to scrub this tape of anything that may look bad on them. You know, he wanted to know if it had been doctored. And I said, you know, I, I won't know what I can do until I hear the recording, but I have been trained to look for things like that. I'll let you know what I can do. And he thought about it for a little bit, and he said, well, you know what, the, the, the worst that can happen is... You don't provide the results that we're hoping for, and we take it to someone else. So, yeah, let, let's give it a shot. So he had me sign a uh, an NDA because, again, this tape was not for public consumption, and he allowed me to put a team together. It was very important to me, especially as someone that was, again, already familiar with this case, to not have any sort of confirmation biases Um cloud my judgment on anything. So I assembled a small team um, with two other professionals in the world um, of true crime and audio engineering and law enforcement. Um, the two gentlemen that I worked with, well, the first one was a gentleman by the name of Michael Whelan, who some uh, of your listeners may recognize as the host of the Unresolved podcast. Um, Michael mm -hmm. has been covering the Long Island serial killer case since 2015. Uh, he and I interviewed Robert Culker back in 2018 about uh, a series of developments in the case, I believe, with DNA technology. And, you know, I knew that, like me, he knew the particulars of this story, but he also knew a lot about audio engineering because Michael produces his own show. And then to round out this small team, we brought in a, uh, a friend and fellow podcaster of ours who was, like, trained in the other side of a situation like this, a gentleman by the name of Jeff Adamick. Uh, who is the host of the Changing Hearts and Minds podcast. And what makes Je uh, Jeff unique as a podcaster um, and someone who would be working on us, uh, uh, working with us on an audio engineering project like this is 
Jeff was law enforcement. He was in the military. He was uh, trained at Quantico by the FBI. He took courses from John Douglas. Um, and he also works um, in uh, computer uh, systems and security. So not only was he familiar with the case as a true crime guy and uh, as a podcaster and, you know, just someone who follows the news, he also has the training of an FBI personnel, essentially, and also has all of the computer background work, which came in <laughs> very handy because John Ray, God love him, he couldn't figure out how to get the um, digital file of the 911 call off of his iPhone, and <laughs> Jeff ended up, you know, walking him through it, and uh, we got that situation sorted out, so... Again, I, I had this team of three people, including myself, that could bring all of our collective experience to the table, check, fact check each other's work. Like, you know, if you have a situation where it's like, I think I hear them saying this word, but what do you think? You know, you got three sets of ears to go back and forth on, and that was incredibly useful. And right. we spent about three months working on that tape, and... I mean, it was a very surreal experience. This was a tape that I honestly never in a million years thought I was going to hear. Like I said, when you have a police department keeping something that close to the chest um, for nearly a decade, usually a good sign it's never coming out. Mm -hmm. And then one day in July 2020, there I am sitting in my home studio with my headphones on listening to... Uh, again, what was dubbed at the time, you know, the holy grail of true crime lost media. And it's it's a chilling recording. I mean, it's public now, and that's the only reason I can talk about this. Now that that phone call has been made public in the last year by uh, Suffolk County, um, the NDA for that portion of uh, the evidence that I worked on with John Ray is, is void. So, I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners have heard that tape. It's, it's chilling. And... Long story short, we ran it through um, several processors. Um, we even used some artificial intelligence to help clean up a lot of the noise in the background. Uh, we used a series of compressors and filters to basically try and make um, the human voices as clear as possible on that recording and see if there are any, uh, again, like John Ray asked for, if there were any voices hidden on there. Um... I mean, I didn't hear anything like that sounded like it was a fourth party. Everything sounded like it was Shannon Gilbert and Michael Pack and Joe Brewer. But of course, since it's just audio and you don't have a visual element to go with it, that's just interpretation, not stone cold fact. But there were things that jumped out about that tape to us. Um, okay. Most mostly just there's really no way to say this, how full of shit the Suffolk County Police Department was about the contents of that tape. For nine years, they all, oh my gosh, she was hysterical. She was out of her mind. She was clearly hopped up on drugs and having a mental break and all this stuff. And she was nonsensical. She, you know, she had no idea. That was definitely the narrative. Yeah, exactly. 100% controlling the narrative because, I mean, I, I, I can't say because, like, I have some sort of insider intel for their motivations here but i'm sorry that that's that whole case reeked of the cops just didn't want to do anything with it 
on a, you know, it was just like the Jeanette Palma story that I chronicled in my first book, Death on the Devil's Teeth. Uh, it, was, it was just some, some stupid young woman who took too many drugs and, and, and went outside and died. You know, they always like to say that too. Shannon succumbed to the elements. Yes. What elements? <laughs> It's Jersey. I mean, or, you know, it's, it was Long Island. Yeah. I know it's Long Island, but I mean, it, it's not like this is the mountains or the desert or, you know, where wild animals are going to come and. Oh, yeah, it was it was early. It was the first week of May. Uh, I mean, one of the things that we did while preparing our supplemental report for John was just basically go through all of the established particulars of the case Um the, we, we reviewed both of her autopsy reports, the one that Suffolk County prepared and the one that Dr. Michael Bodden um, prepared for the family uh, independently. And we were checking everything from the tide reports, the weather reports, all of this stuff. At the time that Shannon's phone call ends and she did not die as soon as the phone line disconnected. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's we all can agree on that. Um, the sun was coming up. It was something like 55 degrees out. And as far as, because uh, some people have speculated like, well, she was in a marsh. She probably fell and got stuck and drowned. People can drown in six inches of water. It was like a, a third of an inch of water mm, yeah. was what was reported for that day. And I mean, this is where stuff gets kind of tricky. Um, I, I won't say their name because this, this has to do with their employment and I don't want to blow up their spot, but I have spoken with someone close to the situation, uh, regarding the recovery effort for finding her body. And what they told me was their staff, we'll put it this way. Their staff said that she was found pretty much sitting up. So you don't hmm. drown sitting up leaning against a shrub and <laughs> yeah. you don't freeze to death when it's 55 degrees out in the middle of may so what elements did shannon gilbert succumb to and when you ask the suffolk county pd that they go i don't know and then they treat you like an asshole if you go well, what do you mean you don't know? They have gaslit Shannon Gilbert's family. They've straight up lied about her. Like, I'll never forget the press conference when they released that 911 call where a reporter had asked about some of these issues that I'm talking about right now. And whoever they had up at the podium at the time was just like, oh, well, we understand from the family that, uh, you know, she had a history of bipolar and, you know, she would have episodes where she wasn't in touch with reality or something. So that's probably what happened. I've talked to Cherie many times about this. Again, Cherie is Shannon's sister. She told mm -hmm. me, yes, Shannon has had bipolar disorder, but she did not have delusions. She had mood swings, but she did not have episodes where she was not in touch with reality. She didn't hallucinate. She didn't have, you know, paranoid delusions or anything like that. She said it was a total mischaracterization. My family never told them that they are pulling that out of their ass. And they've been called out on this many times. And the Suffolk County PD never, ever, uh, you know, um, corrects the record on it. And again, if she's just some call girl, quote unquote, who, you know, they were trying to say everything from, oh, well, you know, she probably did some coke with her client and, and freaked out and died. But, you know, when they tested her hair at her autopsy it came back negative for all drugs so there went that theory 
But, you know, again, if she's just some nobody who, you know, quote-unquote, succumbed to the elements in a marsh where coincidentally um, a serial killer is using it as his dumping ground, then why are the police lying about so much? Why do they mischaracterize Shannon? Why did they lie about what's on the tape? Because, again, they're, oh, she was hysterical on it. Yeah, she's agitated on, on the tape, but she knows where she is. She does not seem to remember the, the house number or anything like that, but she's just like, you know, I, I'm, I'm near Jones Beach, and she was. And, you know, she was answering questions, she was lucid, but she definitely seemed to be very fearful. And fearful of what would happen to her once she leaves Brewer's house. Now, Brewer just wanted her gone. You know, you can hear on the recording, he's trying to get her out of there. But again, that's another weird thing with this case, because it's never really been definitively definitively established what happened in that home that led Shannon to freak out and call 911 and feel like someone was going to kill her. It's never been established if Brewer threatened her in some way. There have been some innuendos over the years that supposedly Brewer had suspicions that um, that Shannon was supposedly uh, assigned male at birth and was a trans woman, which... I'm not even going to get into innuendos like that. It's it's just so stupid. It's not even worth uh, examining. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And that th- that supposedly, you know, him questioning her on that led her to freak out. Just weird shit like that. So that's another kind of murky gray area in this already bizarre story. But again, it's she is afraid of what is going to happen to her when she leaves the house. And when you listen to the tape something does happen to her when she finally does leave brewer's home about i think it's about 17 or 18 minutes into this 21 minute phone call what's Um, going on by the way like with brewer during this 17 minutes that she's still in the home if she's supposedly so hysterical and whatnot what is what is his reaction is he is he heard in the background He's heard several times. Basically, the phone call starts out. Shannon is um, sitting behind uh, a couch in his living room on the second floor of his house. She's like basically sort of hiding behind the couch, essentially. And you can tell Brewer knows that she's on the phone with the cops because he's doing that like firm, but I'm reasonable kind of voice like, okay, come on, it's time to leave like that kind of thing. Like he knows he's he's being monitored by law enforcement by this point. So, you know, he's not being too forceful. He's not trying to grab at her or anything on the tape. Um, As far as I remember, I might double check that afterwards. I don't think it's established if he touches her. But, um, you know, he's basically in and out for the first 10 minutes of the tape. You know, sometimes he disappears for a minute or two. Sometimes um, he reappears and she's like, all right, no, you need to go. Look, your driver's here. Because at one point during the tape, uh, Shannon's driver, Michael Pack, enters the home. And this this is where things get interesting. The, the first part of what happens in this ordeal, Pack has been pretty honest about. You know, oh, uh. You know, I saw there was an issue in the home. Uh, I went in and, 
you know, Shannon's hiding behind a couch. And at one point I thought she was faking it. So I asked her if she'd ever seen the movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Because there's like kind of like a similar scene in that movie where Johnny Depp playing yes. Dr. Hunter S. Thompson's like freaking out and hiding in a room. Yes. So. <laughs> Great. Scene. And you do hear that on the tape. And he says something like, you know, you, it's just like that movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Right. And and she she's like confused by what he means by it. she's like, huh? And um, so he's pretty honest about that. But eventually there comes a point in the tape where Michael and Joseph get frustrated and they both leave. Pack ostensibly goes back to his car, which is parked outside. Not sure where Joseph walked off to. Joseph told a strange story to either the police, the media, or both, where he claimed, oh yeah, she eventually left my house when I found her hiding in one of my bathrooms and I scared her out. That's not on the tape. On the tape, you hear them both leave. She's still on the line with 911. Things get really quiet for a couple minutes, and you can hear her moving around in what sounds like a bathroom. There's a lot of reverb in it, like you would like with tile in a room. Mm-hmm. And you hear her leave the room and she starts kind of like slowly moving around the house. You can hear the rhythm in her footsteps. Like it seems like she's like looking around like where is everybody or like is the coast clear kind of thing. And she eventually feels comfortable enough to leave the house. She leaves the house of her own volition. She does not leave the house scared off by Joseph Brewer as he has said over the years. All right, Jesse, we are back, and we'll just call that a little sponsor break. Yes, a word from our lovely sponsors. Absolutely. So the way you we ever left weird off, ones, ah, uh, you know, maybe some gold and silver ads every once in a while. <laughs> oh man, we, uh, my podcast, uh, small plug here. Um, uh, I've got two that I work on um, now that Devil's Teeth. Uh, came to a close uh, true crime movie club where we review these awful bargain barrel true crime movies and uh, podcast 1289 which is a roundtable po- uh, comedy podcast where we lampoon like bizarre conspiracy theories goofy paranormal stories um, some ridiculous true crime if you will um, we go through Spreaker who we love Spreaker rules they've been very very good to us but occasionally because of whatever algorithm is at play and it's a region based algorithm, you will get some very bizarre ads on our show. And, uh, like sometimes you'll get like Guatemalan McDonald's ads or stuff like that, (laughs) or like marital aids. And, uh, we always joke about that every time it happens. We're like, yeah, the English speaking world is done with our shit or, you know, people only, only the dildo companies want something to do with us this week. So (laughs) it's always very funny. Can we, can we say dildo on this show? Of course you can. I mean, it's been, it's been brought up as, uh, you know, been oh. found at crime scenes and stuff before. Oh, so. like in Arthur e. Lee Allen's trailer. <laughs> this is true. And then there was also one in the Colonial Parkway murders. I've had That's Bill, right. Bill Thomas was... has been on, on a few times. And and uh, that case is crazy. It is. Uh, another small plug. Uh, Michael Whelan, who uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, who worked on the tape with me. And uh, frequent guest, uh 
host on uh, the aforementioned podcasts. He did a multi-episode series on those murders as well, which is really good. So listeners, if you haven't checked that out, definitely check out Unresolved, another quality podcast like the one you're listening to. But um, back to the story here. Um, Yeah, so the interesting thing about what happens next on the tape is... For years, Joseph Brewer told either the police, the press, or both that, oh, no, Shannon left my house because I found her hiding in a bathroom and I scared her out. I think he said he opened the door and and jumped, like, boo. And uh, that's what finally got her to leave. But that's not on the tape. The tape definitely seems to suggest that she is hiding in a bathroom at one point. You can hear that kind of reverberation that comes from a a room with a tile floor or at the very least tile on the walls. But no one ever enters that room. She eventually notices the house gets quiet. Um, Pack has since gone outside. Not sure where Brewer goes off to. And you can hear her leave the bathroom and the kind of rhythm of her footsteps indicate that she's kind of like, I don't want to say creeping like in a negative connotation, but that kind of like you're walking around a house to see if anyone's like going to, you know, dart out from behind a corner or something like that. Peering around the corners and sort of moving slowly, just checking your environment basically. Yeah, there's a there definitely seems to be a clear intent that she is she is looking for something or looking to see if 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 someone is hiding somewhere. And eventually she notices the notices the coast is clear and finally um gets up the nerve to go outside, which as we mentioned before, she seemed very very fearful of um, and, and the police always framed it as inexplicable, like, oh, we don't understand why, you know, she refused to leave the house. And she, she clearly says on the tape to Michael Packer driver, who's like telling her, come on, let's go back home. Uh, she's like, what's going to happen to me? She keeps saying that what's going to happen to me when I go outside. And it's clear she's afraid of him. Um, the reasons for which are never really made clear, but. Those suspicions are kind of vindicated by what happens next, because you hear her go out the door, you hear her run down the steps of the, um, it's like, the whole layout of the house is weird, it's, it's like, it's like a two-story home, but what would be the first story on most homes is, like, the first story. And, you know, the the, the actual first story of the house is, like, a basement. So mm. to get to the first floor of the house, you have to go up, like, 30 feet of stairs. And Michael Pack, oh, the way that he always told this to the press and to the police was, oh, yeah, I was, I was sitting in my car waiting for her to come out, and I noticed she ran out and she fell down the steps and then just ran past my car and I, you know, I stuck my head out the window and kept shouting for her and, you know, she wouldn't, she wouldn't get in the car. And like, I started my car and I was following her, shouting her name, begging for her to get in the car. And she just kept running. That's not on the tape. On the tape, she runs down those steps, you know, doesn't fall. There's no incident on the steps. It's when she gets to the bottom of the steps There is a confrontation. You can hear what I can best describe as a scuffle. Um, It sounds like Michael Pack, he says something to her. God, I wish I had the transcript in front of me. I'm embarrassed of this right now. 
Um, he says, he says, you know, hold on. Let me just pull this up really quick because this is important. Um, and I'm sure the transcript. No, this is great. This is great uh, podcasting. Everybody loves it when when we do like a, a deep dive into the visuals that they can't see. Yeah, right. <laughs> We can always edit this. Baby. Trust me. No, it's it, you know, I I find it actually somewhat endearing to some of these shows. You know, it shows that we're, we're not like you know full of ourselves as as experts. It's like, yeah, hold on, let me Google that real quick. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, and it's not like experts. Let's be honest, people that are experts, they're sitting there looking at their phone. Yeah, too. they have to have fact checks. It's just a part of getting it right like you said you know like you wanted to do this tape right and that's why you spent three months and it, on yeah it. and it's one of those things too it's like we spent so much time on it that once we were done with it we we kind of needed to take a breather and step back i mean our work was done with the case anyway but we really needed to like take a step back from the case when it when something this dark kind of um takes front front and center stage in your life for that amount of time it's like I need to kind of reset. So while a lot of this stuff has been very easy coming to memory, other stuff, it's like, what was the exact wording here? I don't want to paraphrase on something like that. So, yeah, it's absolutely understand. I probably should have pulled this up beforehand, but no, I, I okay. thought my memory was going to fail me. I'm, I'm getting older. I'm not I'm not the young, scrappy, true crime writer <laughs> I once was. And now I'm just a regular schlub in his mid 30s. Yeah, aren't we all? <laughs> Let's see here. And by the way, listeners, if you would like to read the transcript I'm scrolling through myself right now, you can find it at unresolved.me slash LISC. That's L-I-S-K. Um, that's just a regular dash. Yeah, dash update. Again, that's unresolved.me slash LISC dash update. Um there is our full transcript. Yeah, and I'll put a link. I'll put a link in the show Perfect. notes as well, so people can can reach it. Yeah, because once that tape was made public, we were like, "All right, let's be as transparent as possible and just release all of our data and and you know whatever people do with it, it's up to them." Again, it was always it was always the mission statement, I guess, if you could call it that. Of let's try and do some good. Let's see if if we can help and whatever happens happens like we we weren't arrogant enough to think maybe we're gonna finally solve what happened to her it's like no we're, we're gonna do our little bit of work here where we're needed and then hopefully you know people who are much better equipped with these matters will take our data and add it to the pile of raw materials that'll hopefully eventually result in a uh conclusion here so my fingers are still crossed for that but I'd be lying if I didn't say I'm pretty disheartened by the way that the Suffolk County PD is treating the investigation or lack thereof into Shannon's death. But well, let's just take a little tangent on the Suffolk County Police Department. Sure. I mean, James Burke is uh, was basically an impediment to this investigation. Oh, yeah. Uh, he purposely blocked out the FBI and, you know, all the different resources that could have been there. And he just kind of stonewalled this this super weird uh body field mm -hmm. i mean basically this was like a dumping ground for a serial killer and yet they didn't want to try to find the serial killer and again 
I've had Maggie Freeling on before, and she thought Burke was a great suspect. Because, oh, so did I. He was again, my number he, one for years. Yeah, and he was number one for a lot of people because why was he number one for you? Because of what? The police, knowing the police stuff, right? And for me, it was it was all of the the clear evasive tactics that and this was just the stuff that was publicly released that we knew what he was doing. The stuff with the burner phones, the the evasion of certain cell phone towers, the whole like well, now we know a little bit more context. At the time, him making those calls in Times Square was framed as, oh, he's going to Times Square because it's a heavily populated place and it'll render security cameras absolutely useless because there's thousands of people walking around at any given second in Times Square with a phone up to their ear. Well, now we know it's because Rex Uriman, you know, worked in the vicinity of Times Square. You know what I mean? So, right. but... At the time when that information was framed that way, it was whoever is doing this is either a cop or uh, someone like um, Ed Kemper, like a cop groupie who like knows all this stuff. This isn't stuff the average person knew about in it, during the first decade of the 2000s. Like, you know, burner phones was something that un unless you were watching The Wire or Breaking Bad every week, that wasn't something the average Tom, Dick and Harry knew about. You know what I mean? So, like, yeah. we knew that this guy wasn't like an Ed Gein, like, you know, oh, he's got an IQ with 72 and he just can't help himself. This guy was cold, calculated, ruthless and smart. Yeah. I mean, so those things led me to believe like this is this is law enforcement or someone that's incredibly familiar with law enforcement tactics. That does beg the question of like, do you think Burke has any connection to Rex? No, not at all. No, none. No, so it's I, just I, coincidence. Then. I mean, dude, like I have spent so much time reporting on uh, crime in Long Island to know that two things can be true at the same time and have nothing to do with each other. Like I, okay. I spent five years working on um, the acid King, the book and the film about the, the Ricky Casso case in long Island that happened in 1984. And you know, some people might say, well, what does that have to do with what we're talking about today? Uh, other than, um, you know, it happened on long Island. Well, I'll tell you uh, one of the things with the Ricky Casso case, because this was a case that was kind of dogged by over the years, a lot of stuff got misreported. There was all the satanic panic stuff about Ricky Casso being a cult leader. And, you know, spoiler alert, he wasn't. And just like even the stuff that he did to his victim, Gary Lowers. And one of those things that was consistently misreported over the years was, oh, uh, yeah, he shoved rocks down Gary Lowers' throat. And th that did not happen at all. But while I was researching the case and writing about it, I wanted to know, well, where did this rumor come from? And I found out where it did indeed come, uh, where it came from. It was a uh, another case on Long Island that I think happened in 79. It was it was the John Pius case. Have you ever heard of that one? I have not. Okay, John Pius was, I want to say he was a younger teenager, um, 13 or 14, I think. You know, listeners, we're going to have another endearing moment here. We are yeah. going to uh, we are going to go back to Google here. Yes, it was uh, 79 
And let's see, he was born in... He was only 14. 14, yeah, he was He was born in 65. Okay. No, he actually hadn't turned uh, 14 yet. He was only oh, 14. Gosh. Jesus. Terrible. Yeah, and it was a very similar thing to the Casso case. He, he was murdered in the presence of uh, two or three other friends or at least peers. So here's the interesting thing there. Just like... Um, with the Ricky Casso case, the prosecution kind of lived and died by one of the witnesses to the murder um, becoming state's witness. That's Albert Canones. In that case, there was one in the John Pius murder as well. Who was the wit- the teenage witness of the John Pius murder who turned state's evidence? Little kid named who? James Burke. Jeez. And when James Burke was called to testify, he came under the wing of Spoda. And Spoda, by all uh, accounts, was the one who groomed Burke to join the police and rise through the ranks. And Spoda was often covering for Burke. So you have all of these like twists and turns and connections. But at the end of the day, that that doesn't mean that James Burke killed John Pius. Yeah, he was a witness. But it was something, you know, that he was tangentially caught up in. So I I believe that Burke could be tangentially also caught up in the Long Island serial killer case in the sense that, you know, I mean, who knows? Maybe he interacted with Hewerman at some point, um, just, you know, being a a Long Island law enforcement officer. Who knows? A lot of stuff's going to come out in the wash during the trial, hopefully. But Mm -hmm. I'm not one of these people that subscribes to some of these more outlandish theories that, oh, yeah, no, um, the night that Shannon died, there was a wild sex party at Joseph Brewer's house, and, you know, Rex Hewerman was there, too, and so was James Burke, and so was Spoda, and they're all covering for each other, and, I, you know... Yeah, a lot of shady shit happened in Oak Beach, but no, there was not eyes wide shut parties going on as far as my research has concluded. And I know some listeners might be disappointed to hear me express that opinion, but that's just my opinion. That's an opinion I formed. I was going to say, it's also one of those things that anybody who listens to these shows knows that when you have a conspiracy of a number of individuals the chances of it being found out is pretty good and they get exponentially higher yeah the chances of getting caught are that much greater and that's why you don't see a lot of you know partner killings well yeah and and that's something that i didn't get a chance to um talk about with ben over on crime capsule yesterday but when we were talking about the whole like Oh, the, the cop theory that Jeanette De Palma, you know, she wasn't murdered. She she died of a drug overdose at a, a teenage party and the kids panicked and dumped her in the woods and they've kept it a secret for 50 plus years. Kids can't keep secrets like the Ricky. Ca- it's a heart. It's like a Harlan Corbin novel. Yeah. And and my evidence for that, in 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 my opinion, is the Ricky Casso case like they they, they kept that murder a secret for like. Two days like Casa was leading tours to the body for three <laughs> weeks. You know what I mean? And yeah, some of the kids kept it a secret, but only because they were afraid that Casa would come and kill them. But one eventually did fess up to uh, the police and their parents about it. And and it was all in the course of under a month. So, yeah, the idea that someone hasn't flipped by now about these, again, supposed, you know, Stanley Kubrick-esque wild sex murder parties on Oak Beach. It's just, 
for my chair here, it just seems kind of unrealistic. It's it's a little too fanciful for me. Yeah, I can't get behind any of those uh, conspiracy theories because of the fact... I mean, there are plenty to go around in this case, but the idea that this is a, a group of individuals, I don't believe is possible. And like we talked about yesterday, like we, we're talking only about Shannon at the moment. And Shannon's yeah. not even connected to... Supposedly not even connected to Lisk. So, or to Rex, I should say. Yeah, because we don't even like, know if Lisk is one person. Because the other thing with the, these Oak, not Oak Beach, with these Gilgo Beach murders slash dumpings is, and this was another thing that impeded the investigation for so long, the Suffolk County um, Detective Bureau seemed split in half, especially arguing with the... Uh, commissioners about this like no one seemed to be able to agree if this was one killer or two serial killers coincidentally using the same dumping ground like when we talked yesterday um again this is just my opinion i as of right now i believe that it was one killer because when you start suggesting like oh no it was it was was two killers they just happen to be using the same dumping ground like that brings to my mind the that meme of the two spider-mans in the alley pointing fingers at each other it's just like that's that's kind of a heavy coincidence you know what i mean like did they ever run into each other did they swap (laughs) tips and tricks who knows you know the burlap works really well Mm mm-hmm Yeah, you got to use the duck blind one. You can't be using potato sacks. (laughs) And the burlap, that was another interesting thing, too, that that confused a lot of people in the in the early days of the case, too, because there, there was so much debate over was there burlap or was there not burlap? Um, because the leak, I don't want to say leak cause I, I don't, it implies something nefarious, but the press getting wind of the burlap came through officer John Malia, who found some of the bodies and eventually helped recover Shannon's body. Um, and he had mentioned in a comment to, I want to say Newsday out on Long Island that, oh yeah, some of these remains were found in burlap. And then once that got out, I think the Suffolk County PD did not want that out initially, and there was some sort of miscommunication there. So the Suffolk County refused to confirm or deny after Malia was quoted on that. So for people whose dedication to facts kind of mattered, um, it was, well, we yeah, burlap has been reported, but we can't confirm it. Meanwhile, while that conversation is going on between these camps of independent researchers and journalists and true crime aficionados and podcasters, it had never like occurred to any of us like, well, what kind of burlap was it? Everybody just kind of assumed like it's potato sacks or like, you know, what what um, fishermen use out on Long Island. And it turned out it was duck blind. So go figure. You know, it was hunting burlap. It was camo. Hey, Jesse, I can't thank you enough for joining me this week on Who Killed? No, thank you. And and yeah, you're right. This this case goes deep. There's and we're just touching on one small, small yet important facet of the Long Island serial killer story. But it's it's one of the biggest rabbit holes that one can go down. And we only scraped the surface of what, you know, people would consider like conspiratorial talk within a rabbit hole. It's just 
I don't know, it's a very strange and, and fascinating and tragic story. And I'm really, really hoping that sooner than later, we're gonna have more answers on it and hopefully some closure if there is such a thing for the families that have been affected by this. But yeah, in, in, in next week's episode, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna get into the, to the real meat of things, uh, for lack of a better term. And uh, hopefully your listeners find it as fascinating as we do. Thanks again, Jesse. This was awesome. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. And thank you so much to Jesse for joining me and discussing this uh, very interesting case. As you know, this is something that I've covered for a number of years. And it's something that is close to my heart. It is a voice for the voiceless as these individuals have sort of been left by the wayside. And again, this was a discovery that happened in 2010. So to think that Rex Hoerman was just arrested in this past summer is kind of wild. So next week, well, it's actually going to be in just a few hours, you will have part two. So you can finish listening to my in-depth conversation about the Long Island serial killer with true crime author Jesse P. Pollock. And you can find his book, The Acid King, as well as many other books just by googling his name and that again is jesse p pollock so thanks again for listening if you want to follow me on twitter you can do so it's at bill huffman three otherwise you can tune in next friday because you know that's when i drop new episodes and as always until next time stay healthy and be safe Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.